Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with Joel McIver. Now this is a name that you should all be somewhat familiar with, what with writing over 30 books and with his fingerprints all over conventional rock and metal media for the past 20 odd years, he's one of the most respected rock journalists out there. He also has a kick-ass podcast called Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall. The podcast itself ended in 2019, but it's still worth a listen. So thanks very much to Joel for taking the time and for carrying me seamlessly through his experiences and his observations of Roadrunner Records. Let's get into it. One, two, fuck it up. Joel, thank you for joining me for a start. Because thanks you're for having me on. Yeah, man. You're obviously an incredibly um, prolific writer in the metal world. You've got 30-odd books. Um, some dealing with Roadrunner, some not, but I see a inkling of a at least a relationship or an awareness of Roadrunner as an entity and as a as a brand. And I was hoping I could exploit that um, with you today. But I was listening to the Dead Rock Stars podcast an hour oh, ago yeah. just to, just to get like the variety of things in, and I I, I turned myself onto the Dimebag and Vinny one, and fuck me, I did I had no idea that you were so central to one my favorite total guitar issue of all time but also the rather controversial um phil anselmo one surrounding surrounding the you know the, the metal hammer. correct yes um yeah yeah but i, I didn't know how, how like, you, it was you and i was like oh my god it's like now the link has been made to 14 year old me up to now and i thought that was just like it hit home when i was walking home from morrison's 17 years ago now isn't it god all that stuff yeah it was terrible stuff really awfully sad I just saw a film on YouTube today, actually, that uh, the Al Rosa Villas being sold off, isn't it, for Flats, yeah. the venue in uh, Ohio where he was killed. Yeah, it was a terrible time, and it was awful. It was a real... People talked about Dimebag's death as, as metal as 9-11. Um, yeah. And although it wasn't a Roadrunner act, those guys were tight with everybody on Roadrunner. Yeah. Um, I'm good friends with Des Fafara uh, of Devil Driver now, but formerly of Cold Chamber. And, um, of course, Cold Chamber toured with Pantera a couple of times. And the stories that I've heard um, about the backstage craziness and, you know, the, the, the fact that Pantera's bus was one giant rolling bar or casino, depending on what the time of night, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, Pantera, great, great band um, and very connected to Roadrunner in loads of ways, even if they weren't signed to them. Yeah, I just wanted to make that. I just wanted to connect those nodes mm. just because it's I'm of that generation where it was the most heartbreaking thing in the world. And it's like a really vivid, it was a really vivid cycle of information. Yeah, you know, there wasn't a lot to well, there was a lot to speculate, but there was not a lot to speculate on the speculation. All the unknowns yeah. were known unknowns, which you know that it the the veil of mystery was always somewhat translucent. You could kind of see what was going on, and that's why it was so heartbreaking because it was just completely senseless, and no one could reconcile any of that. But anyway, dark way to kick it off, <laughs> but for me that that article with um Dama getting shit faced at the metal Hammer awards was just fucking brilliant. oh it was hilarious and what the happened do-over. was as as you know because you read it but what happened was he was asked to do an interview with total guitar um either during or right after the metal hammer awards but he was so fucked up it was not possible uh, and he smashed his guitar up and you know generally behaving in a, in a really obnoxious way actually so three days later when he calmed down a bit total guitar said to me would i like to go and have a shot at interviewing him uh, about his new guitar at the time, which was a Washburn, I think, interestingly, although he was known for Dean guitars later on. Um, so I went in there and he was sort of the most hungover man I've ever seen that, that, that could still talk and walk. He looked terrible, um, but he was still really, really funny and gave me a great interview. 
And uh, I had this broken guitar that he'd smashed up. And I said, did you do this? And he said, yes, sir, that was me. And uh, that, where did that thing go? It went off to Sotheby's in the end. It got sold. And I was asked to go in and talk about it on TV um, <laughs> not long later. But the, anyway, so I have this memory of Dimebag. At the end of the interview, big, big smile, holding out his fist to me like that and said, Jewish brother. And we did a fist bump. And, and that was that. And then six months later, he was killed. So uh, terrible, awful thing to happen to such a nice guy. So. Yeah, yeah. So kicking off into the Roadrunner world then, obviously your background in terms of your line of work is is, is typically around bands and the artists themselves. Yeah. So I guess I'm kind of looking for validation with this question, but okay. as, like, has the concept of a record label and the history of and the mechanics of a record label ever been compelling in an academic sense to you? It has been in the last couple of years, not before that. Uh, I've done a bit of teaching at BIM, you know, the colleges, the music yep. schools. Uh, and one of the courses I had to do was called Cultural Perspectives. And that sort of went deep into pretty much the whole infrastructure of the entire music industry, as well as the political nature of some of the music. And along the way, we talked about music, uh, sorry, the music industry uh, and how that had moved from a major label versus my, uh, uh, indie label set up decades ago to where it is now, where the labels are a completely different beast of the way they were. So in that sense, yes, I have talked in a sort of uh, structural analysis kind of way about record labels. Before that, though, I have to say, no, not really. The record label was just the bank um, that that, that produced the bits of plastic that we all consumed and paid stupid amounts of money for before it went down in like the year 2002, whenever it was. Uh, so yes, I know is the answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> what, so was it, was it simply the engagement uh, in, in your teaching role that made you think a bit more? Yeah, it was really. I mean, yeah, yeah that, that's exactly it. You know how you learn through teaching. That's, the, yeah. that's, that's yeah. one of the great things about teaching. You actually are forced to engage with your subject on a more profound level. Um, uh, yeah, that, that was really where that came from. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Well, with regards to Roadrunner, for me, the nostalgic bit is like tr- the triviums and kill switch engages of the world. I'm of that, that era. Right, but right. The history of the label is quite... It's the parallels it draws with certain, certain eras and, and um, what it tries to latch onto um, makes me kind of conclude that it's at least partially by design in some ways. Because a lot of the time in the, in the industry, there's a big amount of luck that's associated with the success of certain things. So when I think of Roadrunner and I look back to the 80s, He's trying to get in with the new wave of British heavy metal. He's trying to get in with thrash, and then there's death. And obviously, they were at the at the end. There were trendsetters, and that was that's the story of Roadrunner. Back foot, trying to respond, eventually innovating, and eventually getting ahead of everyone else. Mm-hmm. But at what point did you, in your metal journey, realize that Roadrunner yeah. was a thing? Well, I've come to realize that we uh, members of the music industry are d- divided very clearly by generations. So I'm a generation ahead of you, at least. Um, and so that means that I first became aware of the Roadrunner name when I was a teenager in the 80s, picking up an album in a record store and looking at it and going, what's this Roadrunner logo, you know, with the big R at either end, you know, like yeah. every metal logo had to have, thanks, Metallica. Um, and then a little bit later on, um, noticing that there were things like, there was Road Racer, wasn't there? which was a subsidiary of Roadrunner. Am I it right? Was, You'll have to it was, confirm It was a that. legally obliged name change for the U.S. market. So right, Roadrunner right, was right. always the parent company. Road Racer had to be in the U.S. because Warner was kicking off because they thought people would confuse a record label with a, 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 a flightless bird. Meet me. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> first time I've ever had to do that in a professional capacity. <laughs> um, the, um, so 
I remember a lot of very big names attached to Road Racer, wasn't it? It, it, it was a, you'll have to fill the gaps in for me, but in my uninformed teenage way, I seem to recall that Road Runner and or Road Racer was a distributor for some big names, right? So I was aware of those bands. It wasn't until 91, 93 that I became acutely aware of them because of the Florida death metal thing, right? So that to me is, is one of two most important incarnations of Roadrunner. The second one being the Slipknot and the Trivium, the rest of that machine head that comes along a bit later. But um, for me, the first music I liked that was from Roadrunner um, was Deicide Obituary, um, Sepultura, Mm -hmm. uh, the stuff that came out in 89, 1991, and that was, I suppose, Suffocation, Malevolent malevolent Creation as well, a couple of those Mm -hmm. as well. When I'm in the mood, that's the that's the kind of roadrunner music I like to listen to. That kind of really really intense death metal that still has a kind of a uh, a digestible edge because it was mostly it was produced down in Florida at that studio. Was it Morris Sound? Morris Sound, yes. Um, and then I kind of tuned out of metal for some years. Not completely. I still listen to my old Metallica albums, whatever. But then when I became a journalist in about ninety nine, ninety eight, nine, ninety thousand, then suddenly uh, suddenly I was bombarded with all this cool stuff from Michelle Kerr, right? Bless her heart. Always been a good friend of mine. I was a journalist on Record Collector magazine. And right after that, as you just said, I was a freelancer for Total Guitar, for Metal Hammer, bass guitar. And I've carried on being a freelancer for various magazines until until now, with the added nuance that I'll get into in, into a minute, which was that I write a lot of books as well. Mm. Um, so the death metal thing was always big. By the time we got to about 2000, or rather, by the time we got to 99, first Slipknot record came out. <clears throat> right after that is when I joined Record Collector. And I clearly remember the promo for Iowa landing on my desk. Uh, or it might even have been the finished example. And it went, in straight, straight, it went straight into number one in England, I remember. Mm-hmm. Because Roadrunner had done this mental strategy over here. Slipknot were always big in Britain. Partly because Michelle Kerr and Kirsten Springs, um, who were the in-house PR. But uh, I don't know, there was something, about, something that appealed to the British audiences as well. So um, there was a thing, a marketing gimmick, uh, whenever Iowa came out in 2001, I think it was 2001, right? Yeah. Um, where if you showed up at a record store at midnight with a goat, they gave you a free copy of the album. <laughs> I swear this is true. I swear to you this is true, right? And a week after it came out, I interviewed Joey Jordison. Uh, Slipknot's drummer at the time, Michelle set it up for me for Echo Collector. I was really excited. And I said, hey, Joey, well, wasn't that a great idea? People could roll up with a goat and get a free album. He went, what? And I said, wait, <laughs> you didn't notice. If you turned up and got with a goat, with a fucking goat on the lead, you, they gave you the record. And he was like, what? That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Uh, I'm going to call Michelle right after this. So that was funny. Um, so... So it's a long answer to your question, but essentially I, I, I started out looking at the imports in the 80s. Then I got into the death metal stuff in the early 90s, and then there was this big gap until suddenly we're in 2000, and, it, and Roadrun is now one of the biggest bands in the world because I went, it went to number one, didn't it? Yeah. Um, so that was when I, got, I found myself immersed in Roadrunner at that point. Now, this, this conversation's already given me a curveball because one of the blind spots for me is the death metal scene. I yeah. like the stuff. I wasn't born of it. Yeah. And I'm trying to understand the leap from licensing what was typically regarded as maybe contemporary metal that we're trying to put out at the time. Like um, um, King Diamond or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then they take a left turn and go, there's this dirty, awful shit down in Florida. And yeah. listen, Case, I know you're about to turn 50. 
but I need to sell you this weird shit with this guy with an inverted cross in his head. How does this happen? So this is all Monty Connor, right? So yeah. he's the genius. Now, Monty, who is a total sweetheart, known him for years, he'll tell you straight away that a lot of it was luck. So their first big thing really was Sepultura um, and Beneath the Remains. Sepultura had already put out two records in South America and Brazil. Um, there's this really famous story, which I'm sure loads of people have told you, that Max Cavalera um, arrived at the sent, sent him a tape. I think it was Don Kay or Borivoy uh, Kurgan who gave Monty the tape. Again, you can find this out from him. Uh, once they got the tape, they loved it. They arranged for Max to fly up to New York from um, Brazil. Max turned up um, and they gave him the deal. Uh, and it was really Sepultura with Beneath the Remains that was that made Roadrunner turn in that direction. And it wasn't so much that death metal was their big thing, I think, but that the studio, Morrison, made such a great, great uh, job of producing that record that there was a demand for albums that had come from that record. That's, that's how I see it. Uh, sorry, that had come from that studio. So that's how I see it. Um, and then once that was in place, then you had Glenn Benson from, from Deerside. The famous story is that he stormed into the office and slapped his demo on Monty's desk and said, sign us, you asshole. And uh, I, I asked Monty about this. I said, is this true? This is a bit too nice sounding to be true. And he said, it's actually at least partly true. He did storm in and, and do this. I don't know whether he called him an asshole or something, mm. but he, he did dive in. He said, sign me. And Deerside were amazing, right? And they had all these incredible, ridiculous, satanic theatrics that people loved. And there was a load of controversy because the enemy didn't like him. And a bomb went off at one of their shows, and you know, I, I don't know, all this stuff. It seems so trivial nowadays, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. At the time, it's like, oh my god, man, like the devil, like the Satanism. Uh. And uh, this wasn't long after the satanic panic of the 80s with Judas Priest and Rob Halford, so people still remembered all this rubbish. Um, then after that, I think it was Typo Negative who got big. I know they had a big hit with King Diamond again, this was probably before Supper Trial. Um, but they didn't just they didn't just have those, those big bands, DSI and Obituary. Um, they also had some smaller bands, like I said earlier, Malevolent Creation and Suffocation, and probably some others that I've forgotten. I should, probably, I should probably have it in front of me. But uh, so there was this, there was this, there was a roadrunner sound, basically. And I think that that might be jumping ahead of something you're going to ask. Mm. But that there was a kind of very, very smooth, aggressive, fast death metal sound, which was totally digestible. Um, and Roadrunner weren't the first label to put that out because Morbid Angel had come out before them and they had signed to Earache in the UK because no American label would take them. Um, and then Cannibal Corpse, I think, came out in 1991 and subsequently went on to be the biggest band of the lot, along with Death, yeah. who would have been the biggest band had Chuck not died. Um, so all this stuff was, was happening in 91, 92, 93, and it was all really interesting. Um, and Roadrunner was really at the heart of it, which is why it's so funny that they went so fully new metal within five, six, seven years. Yeah, it's, 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 well, first of all, thanks for giving me an academic link between like how the death metal thing happened. When we talk about Monty and his impact, it's interesting when you, when you speak to him now, because he'll say straight out the gate, I took it all for granted. I have no idea. <laughs> Everything I touched fucking turned to gold. It was great. He um, was just a metal kid, right? Yeah. You know, he got the Sepultura record. He said it himself, look, this sounded like Slayer from Brazil. I was just very lucky that it turned out to, to be gold, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I say my sort of theory. This is like a big, silly, silly. Trying to I find I try and find patterns with around on and all that shit and make random speculation. But I think like Monty's hard work, his grafting, was like eighty three up to about eighty seven, and it's him, Don, and Borovoy, and that network where you couldn't form a band in those years without them knowing about it. And I think right. that's the substance, and yeah. that's and then when Case brings in the infrastructure to allow 
commercial exploitation of that network, mm. that's the thing that makes death metal viable. I think. I think so. But again, they'll tell you that, you know, uh, outside of the, the two or three bigger bands, those other records didn't sell well at all. Those bands yeah. didn't start making any money until literally the last 10 years when they came back on independent labels and reaped the classic dollar, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, I think, so when regards to the errors, you also mentioned like the, the trivium right. bit as so well. Right. So this to me is really interesting. It wasn't the music that I preferred. I preferred the death metal stuff because just because yep. that's my age. But at the same time, I have spent so much time with those guys. Um, I hung out with Trivium a lot because I interviewed them a lot. There was a period in about, I don't know, 2005 to 2012 or 2013, that kind of time, when I did tons and tons of writing for <clears throat> a bunch of future publishing owned mags, uh, Total Guitar, Metal Hammer, uh, Rhythm, um, Bass Guitar, which was not owned by Future. But basically, I wrote for all these instrumental magazines and the metal mags. So I was always being asked to go and interview Roadrunner bands, right? So whether it was Devil Driver, Machine Head, Trivium, Revenge Sevenfold, they, um, they were Roadrunner. No, they? they were similar kind of scene. Um, yeah, different label. Yeah. Uh, it, they were anyway among the bands that I interviewed all the time. Yeah. Um, Nickelback. Um, every now and then I would interview Rush, who had a very brief tenure on, on Roadrunner. Yes. Um, and then all these smaller bands as well, like Spine Shank and um, always Malevolent Creation from time to time. Certainly a bit of suffocation, the, the names I keep mentioning. Um, and then all the new bands that never went anywhere, like Stedler, you know, who blessed Michelle and Kirsten. They did a great job of PRing that, that lot, mm. but uh, never really went very far. Um, and Slipknot, obviously, they, they were the big band, weren't they? They were the moneymaker. Um, Although, actually, you ask Monty, and he'll tell you that, that Nickelback enabled the success of Nickelback, and specifically that one single, How You Remind Me, is that what it's yep. called? Um, enabled the investment into tons and tons of other metal bands. So as much as people like to, to, to slag off Nickelback, actually, mm -hmm. Nickelback's success was responsible for a whole lot of good stuff. The other thing, one thing that's interesting, I've never met a band who actually didn't slag off Roadrunner in some way or other, if they'd been signed yeah. to them. Yeah, they talk about the without naming any names, you know, but they talk about the deal that they signed, which they thought was restrictive. Um, mm -hmm. Monty told me once they didn't have a 360 degree deal because they didn't have their fingers in the band's merch, but they did have a what I guess would be regarded as a 270 degree deal in that they took money from uh, three uh, streams from the band's revenue, right? And like, mm -hmm. where, 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 what's, what's right, you know, what, where, where do you stand on that? Did anyone force the bands to sign those deals? No. Uh, could those young kids who signed those deals have been better advised? Yeah, you know. Um, I think it's it's difficult because I, I can't think of many labels where the band are like everything's brilliant. I mean, and everything's amazing. I no, just that, think that should gets, be made clear. Actually, that yeah, I, I think Rodan gets a bit of a bad rap in terms of the that yeah. PR side of it because of the scale of success. Because we're talking nothing bands all the way up to Nickelback. Now mm. that's a breadth that no independent metal label has actually um attained which, whichever way you want to cut it it's, it's a level of success that no independent metal right. label is no, that's, done. That's fair. so i think it's i think it's punching up i think it's an easy thing to do um and i'm not yeah you know, i'm not shilling for rudder in, in a weird way but i'm also acknowledging that i get that barely anyone makes any fucking money in music anyway so it's <laughs> it's it's i think sometimes a false equivalence to slag off roadrunner um, and I think yeah. only now are we having more open conversations and being able to see the books on this kind of stuff. 
I think that makes sense. And it's been such a shifting landscape anyway for the last 15 years. It's been hard to know what's right and what isn't. Um, nowadays, I'm sure bands who signed a, the equivalent of a 1990s Roadrunner contract wouldn't be very happy, you know. Um, it's interesting. I mean, but then again, it, it, you know, it was the home to a huge community of people. They did that great 25th anniversary thing. Um, yeah, the Roadrunner United City. called, yeah, yeah, where they got these super groups together. And that, I really enjoyed that at the time. I remember following that very closely when it came out. Um, and then later on, uh, I might be jumping ahead a bit, they, they really did expand, didn't they? They got Rush. Didn't they do Sabbath? Did they have that last Sabbath? They had, in Europe, Europe, they had Heaven and Hell. Um, the Heaven and Hell, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, oh, they had like, Megadeth. No, they have Megadeth. Yes, yes. they had Megadeth. For, the, for what was it? The system has failed? Was it that record? Uh, one after United Abominations and yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a single uh, record. Head Crusher? I, I, I don't know. The one after. Uh, Head Crusher was a single, but. Um, Whatever, System Has Failed, I can't remember. But, um, System Has Failed 2004. Yeah, I should know really because I did uh, Ellison's book. But um, the they got their fingers into a lot of very, very big pies, didn't they? Yes. Um, and then that was basically the end um, of, of the label. But So there was a period when Roadrunner was this massive entity, um, presumably funded by venture capital or, or someone's capital. I don't know. I can, talk, I can talk you through it if you like. Yeah, Warner, right? So we start with... We start with um, the acquisition in 2001 by Universal. Right. This happens in um, response to a need for funding, basically. Yeah. Um, due to a, how do I describe this in short terms? Basically, Roadrunner were trying to expand and they were trying to have a joint venture with another giant company called Edel. Um, some Domino's. Oh, Germans, yeah, yeah. Correct. Some dominoes fell on the German side of things, and all of a sudden, Roadrunner had to pay back a substantial amount of money very quickly. Right. Um, and one way to raise that capital was uh, by having Universal buy a stake. Now, U- Universal. Now, this is this is now the thread is getting thinner uh, <laughs> as I try and piece this together. But I think the first domino fell in 1992 with Urban Discipline by Biohazard. So the story behind that was Biohazard were technically signed to Warner. Mm. And Warner said, look, this is a underground kind of record. It's pretty street in terms of the credibility. And we don't have that kind of clout. Yeah. Hang on. There's this label called Roadrunner down in Lafayette. We put Biohazard out on them. We then eat up Biohazard. And then we get like that. The ascension of Biohazard to Warner from Roadrunner is like a, it's an arc which gives Warner credibility to have that kind of act. Mm. In Warner at the time, uh, and this is where it gets shaky, a guy called Leo Cohen. Um, yeah, he's the guy that spots Roadrunner and goes, this is viable. He then works at Universal for 2001 and goes, oh, I love this band, uh, this brand. I love the uh, Roadrunner. I know how Case runs the show. And um, Slipknot's just dropped. We want Slipknot. They buy out their 50%. Three months later, Silver Side Up from Nickelback comes out. Hooray. Now we've got you know they've met they've struck an amazing deal uh five years later leo goes to warner and then uh there's a apparently there's a, a dinner where case takes his senior staff out and says i'd like to announce that i have now bought the rice runner back off universal hooray well done case and he goes for five minutes and then i sold it on to warner so they take a minority share i believe at that point and then that slowly creeps up over a few years um, in 2010, it all starts coming to a head and the paychecks start coming from Warner as opposed to Roadrunner. So right. people start getting, get, start getting sacked, which leads to 2012, where it all, I'm going to say collapses. It, it, it's where the old guard fall, I guess. 
I remember it very, very clearly. Tell you me know? your perspective of that from a journalistic perspective, because it's, from a fan's perspective, we know something's going yeah. wrong. We know yeah. Clown's on Facebook and Matt Evie's on Facebook saying this is a travesty. But as a fan, it's difficult to comprehend from an industry perspective, right? Well, it blew over pretty fast. As soon as those bands got new homes, right? And as soon as it became apparent that a lot of bands were not going to need a new home and that the world would go on, uh, it, it all went away. The thing is, really, we were all such good friends with Michelle and Kirsten. They, they and Monty, their importance should not be understated because really Michelle and Kirsten did everything for that label over here. So when they lost their jobs and went independent, we were all gutted because they're friends of ours, like you would be with any mate who's, who's been let down by their employer. Um, once they had um, set themselves up again and carried on doing PR for all those bands um, and the bands that we knew and loved were all located elsewhere, then it was okay, it blew over. But um, it was interesting. It seemed like the end of an era Perhaps it was less so because the name Roadrunner has continued. If the name had gone away and Roadrunner just didn't exist at all now, then mm. perhaps we'd be uh, a little bit more gutted and look back more fondly. But it is there, isn't it, in some form or other? You know, I, I, I don't really know what the, the holding company business is or really care to be honest with you. From a journalism point of view, um, I didn't write too much about it because my focus was always on the bands and the music and the instruments. Sure. I didn't dig deep into it. And in fact, we couldn't. No one was very keen to talk about it on the record. What did I write? I think I wrote a Farewell to Roadrunner article in Metal Hammer. That was what I did. And I think Monty helped me out. I think, was it Metal Hammer? One of those magazines that has a, the, end of, the end of an era hmm. regular feature, whether it's the end of something or whatever. And I did Farewell to Roadrunner. And that was a cool little piece to write. Um, it was managed well from a PR point of view. Yes, some of those bands did go online and get irked about it, but I think once everything was smoothed over and management were talked into it, I speculate yeah. it all went away. You know. Are you ready for some baseless speculation and some possible daydreaming from my part? Of course. So the arc of this story is um, four-year-old Dutch opera fan found metal label which goes on to conquer the world there's a trajectory there and if you think about where roadrunner was at the end of its days as an independent entity i use the term it was very a very very disruptive vehicle for conventional um music mm. and, and for the yeah. normal music zeitgeist example um which has been fleshed out a little bit more which was um slipknot knocking the game by dmx off the charts yeah that's important that's important yeah. to the narrative of how people interact with music and media. Mm. It's important to how we perceive outliers and how we, um, how we consume things and how we shape ourselves as people. This, again, big minded fucking narcissistic comments from myself, but it's, it's, <laughs> it feels like that's the trajectory. And when it folded in 2012, it felt like, okay, the last domino has fallen and this is, this is now going to be an unfinished job. Does that make sense or am I full of shit and full no, of No, you're not air? full of shit, but I wouldn't say anything felt... I, f I felt that Roadrunner had become something else by, by signing Rush uh, and trying to expand into business that was so far away from the sepultures of this world. I, I, I didn't mourn it particularly. I, I mourned the people, but the absence of the label, uh, not so much because it had become such a different thing. Um, Maybe it was time for it to go somehow. Now I look back. Um, the first time I've even thought this through. But, you know, maybe it just got a bit too bloated. It seemed to be following in the footsteps of Sanctuary a little bit, if you know that story. 
I don't um, know it properly. I know I, I remember when the EMI, the sanctuary bit, closed off. If the you only thing a synopsis, the, yeah, the only thing I would say is that sanctuary was Iron Maiden's label, yeah. and they very quickly expanded into a management company. I think a booking agency, although check that. Uh, book publishing arm. I wrote a couple of books for them. Um, funded with just huge amounts of money, and they just went so big so quickly. They had Elton John, they had Paul Weller. I, I dread to think who they had. They might even have Beyonce at one point. I mean, it just mm. got so massive and, over, and bloated that it fell apart and it, it died pretty quickly. Everything went down. And I don't know the details. I know there were some prison sentences. Um, what? But you, you, yeah, really? but you can find all this stuff out. But um, uh, it, 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 so I always, I always felt that the Roadrunner story was broadly similar in that it just got too big and that it ended when it got that big. So I didn't right. miss it for that reason. Right, okay, okay. On reflection, now that we know this arc, what's your particular favourite Roadrunner moment? Mm -hmm. Or perhaps most important Roadrunner moment? Because we have a few of these things. We have Florida Death Metal, we have Slipknot and Nickelback, and we have this closing off period. Maybe the bomb threats at DSI shows are a, a, um, a hallmark of times gone past of a simpler time. I want to say... Uh, when I worked with Max Cavalera on his autobiography, which was called My Bloody Roots. I'll take credit for that title. It made so much sense given his history. We sat and revisited all those classic Sepultura records from when he was in the band and Soulfly. Soulfly were on Roadrunner, weren't they? For years and years. Oh, well, for a couple of arms. No, yes, for years. I'm thinking Throughout, of, I think. I'm thinking, of, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of Sepultura post-Max. They only stayed on Roadrunner for, for a couple of records, yeah. Yes. Um, I'm going to say that my favorite moment was going through those records with Max because the, cause he's a real sweetheart, that guy. He's been through so much trauma. So to see him smiling and laughing and, and really getting into the music again, that, that, was my, that was my happy moment when it came to Roadrunner. But I will say that, you know, talking to Rob Flynn, talking to Matt Heafy, talking to Corey Taylor, talking to all those cool people, even Glenn Benson and Steve Asheim and, and the death metal guys, you know, they've been nothing but good fun, good people, really interesting. So it's, it's a whole spectrum of excitement for me. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you got a particular favourite Roadrunner artist? Probably Sepultura. Um, you specifically beneath the remains to Chaos AD. Um, right. I did. I did like Roots, but it was it was what it was. It was designed to get stadiums of people happy, you know. Um, whereas Chaos AD was a little raw. Uh, Arise and um, beneath the remains are just brutal. Uh, those that that period of, of sepulture is my my favorite yeah yeah do you have any love for typo negative respect yeah. i'm not sure i'd put the stuff on uh often to uh for pleasure but i'm full of respect for those guys um you know i, I never met peter would love to have done uh i really loved what um some of them went on to do with a pale horse named death um afterwards yeah full of, lots of respect for them yeah i think they're my they're my renaissance band because i only got into them I got their last album before Pete died mm. and I sort of dabbled with October Rust and then recently I've had to, I've obviously had to listen to Bloody Kisses knowing its importance in the history of the label. And I'm just yeah. like, I am the right age and the right, just the right level of cynicism for a 32 year old for this. This is perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, he yeah. had a great, they had a great sense of humor and a great art direction and a great sort of lack of respect for everything. Um, <laughs> shame. It's, a, it's a real shame he went when he did. I'm sure he had much more great music in him. Yes. Now is the era for Pete Steele, really, isn't it? I think so. I think he, he, would have, he would have lyrically and musically fitted in really, really well with what people like nowadays. Yeah. Um, 
but there you go. You know, like life is cruel sometimes. Absolutely. And there is no closure. There's no reconciliation. You just fucking roll on. There's, yeah. there's only sugar addiction, which can get us through. <laughs> well, so I asked them in my email and there's no obligation to prepare. Um, but for your top five Roadrunner records, because people seem to be quite quick to be able to summon an idea of what those are. All right. <clears throat> all right, I'll give you five albums that I love that came out on Roadrunner, all right? Go for it. These are not in any order. Uh, I've got to say The Blackening by Machine Head. That was the, the, the best comeback record of all time, as far as I'm concerned, in heavy metal. It had that incredibly enraged song about dying by Daryl, Aesthetics of Hate. Um, that halo, it had a whole new art direction which they're still following today. Rob Flynn really, really brought it with that record. Uh, it's not so much that they hadn't done well before, but they hadn't done as well as this in quite some time. Mm. Then I want to say uh, Beneath the Remains by Sepultura because it's this all-time thrash record. If you are going to listen to thrash that is not of the big four and is not of the German bands, then really you've got Sepultura as your next stop. And Beneath the Remains and Arise are up there with the best of American thrash, I absolutely think. Yep. Then I'd like to mention um, uh, Nymphetamine by Cradle of Filth, who were not an obvious uh, roadrunner band, actually, given their black metal origins. But really, by the time they did this record, Nymphetamine, I think in 2006, um, it was, uh, they were essentially a kind of beefed up artistic theatric heavy metal band. And it had this great song on it uh, called Gilded excuse my French, uh, which was very much in keeping with their sense of humor and, and the sort of madly vivid art direction that, that they have. Um, then after that, I'm going to say uh, Dayside's third record, which I think is called Once Upon the Cross. And it has this insane song on it called They Are the Children of the Underworld. And I was talking to Monty Connor about this, and he agrees that that's the most commercial death metal production that there is. Not commercial in the sense that it sounds like pop, but it's but the mix is so, so perfect. So bottom heavy, yet so clear. The vocals are so good. The structure and the arrangement of the song is just so, just so competitive. And then really, I, I, I would love to mention albums by Soulfly. I already had a Sepultura. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm friends with the guys in Trivium and, and I've met the guys in Within Temptation and obviously Megadeth had a moment there as well. These are all great people and great records. Um, but I think for the final one, I think this is the fifth one. I think I've done mm -hmm. five. Um, yeah, so, no, so sorry start off with um i'm going to, have to work backwards cradle of filth wreath of remains um deicide and machine head machine head sorry yes so yeah so the last one i just had it in my head i think it's gone out okay uh i'm gonna say the first cavalier conspiracy record really um, which was uh, yeah right a lot of people say that it's sort of underrated that band just a little mm. get together with uh, max and his brother igor um but those riffs are just really really hardcore really really simple very punkish very quick. They didn't mm -hmm. think the songs out, and it worked for that reason. It wasn't overthought. That's was a great little album. Yeah, I, I first saw them and heard them at Download 2008, and that's where I also first heard and saw Refuse Resist, and I was like, mm. "Oh, that's the formative. That's my formative Sepultura moment, really." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, yeah. you know, you can you can jump in, parachute in at any point in their career, and it's brilliant. You know, even yeah. the later stuff that I like post Max, you know, some of that's great. There's a there's a great single or or song on each of the new records. They always do something good. Yeah, absolutely. The Blackening is a good shout as well because mm. I remember in a, an interview, ironically, with Monty and Rob Flynn. Yeah. Monty refers to it as shitting lightning twice, which never happens. As in, like not not as in like as a term in day, as in like right. no. No, you're right. They had had um, burn my eyes right, and then had not matched that one, and then as you say, they came back with the second record. It was astounding amazing i'm sure i've missed that loads of cool bands opeth i haven't talked about them 
obituary. Nail Bomb was a great little side project from Sepultura. <laughs> I said an awful lot about them. Um, oh my God, they, they had Life of Agony. They had Kill Switch. Did you have any Lefer Grunge Rock? Uh, I, I've heard it. It didn't really grab me. It wasn't one of my favorite things. Oh, there's Brujeria as well. Yeah. And Carnival. Yeah, yeah. In bringing this train to the station, is there any stories or anecdotes or observations or anything that you'd like to share that I might have missed? I remember, I think it was about 2008, 2009. I can't remember the exact year. Metallica were playing, I think, at Twickenham Stadium in London and Machine Head were supporting. It's 2007. Uh, was it 2007? Good, I good. I, went... I missed the bus to get home. <laughs> and that, that is a long fucking bus to miss. Oh, my word. <laughs> well, I hung out with Machine Head all night. Um, uh, I and a friend of mine called Sarah Harding, is, uh, you, you might know her, she's a, a, a video DJ person and a real, just a real sweetheart. She knows them very well. And we had a few beers in the dressing room. Um, and uh, I have on my office door a big poster saying Metallica Catering because I ripped it off the door at the end of the show and brought it back, stuck it on my door. And for ages, my kids had Metallica dressing room written on their on their bedroom door it's funny uh anyway and i remember walking out of um yeah this wasn't twickenham this was at the o2 so it's a different year so it was the o2 uh, arena and if you know the o2 arena then um you know that it's this enormous terrifyingly massive place and when it's, when it's empty it is really weird and i walked out of there it must have been two in the morning with phil demo and a couple of others and uh we were the only people there. I swear to you, the only people there. Wasn't a security guard there. All the lights were on full. We walked out into the middle of London. It's a maddest experience, uh, full of beer, having had a right laugh in their dressing room. Uh, mm. So that's, that's a Roadrunner-related memory. But I will say also, all the times I spent with Max Cavalera on his book, um, yeah. just digging deep into his memories, you know, trying to bring him through all the traumatic stuff he'd experienced. Um, that was a, uh, an amazing, interesting task to be involved in. It's a real honor for me as a big suffrage Awesome. It'll be 2009 then if it was OT Arena. Good man. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you very much. Not uh, at all. I hope that's usable. I, I oh, dude, it's all, all okay. usable. There's, there's a few academic through lines there which I'm definitely going to